When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. Hello everyone, welcome to Hue at Home, I'm Tracy Koga. Well, we have been inundated with COVID-19 updates, the age limits dropping for vaccines, and it seems that we have become oblivious as to what is happening elsewhere in the world. Israel and Palestine are at the brink of war, and there's still great political unrest in South Asia. It seems that we have lost our respect for human rights, especially women and children who become the collateral damage of war. So how do we solve this? It isn't so simple. But here in Winnipeg, we have a national treasure, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And in August 2020, Aisha Khan became the CEO, the first woman and person of color to hold this position. She sits down in a very candid conversation to talk about the importance of human rights, not only for the community, but also looking internally to the museum to make sure the Canadian Museum for Human Rights respects and truly believes in the rights for all. Aisha, it is so good to see you again in person. This has been, I think, probably a year you'll never forget, but here we are sitting in the beautiful Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And I guess my first question is, Let's talk about the journey that you have been on since August of 2020. Well, it's been a journey. It will continue to be a journey, but I have to say it's been pretty amazing. Um, I started in in mid-August of last year at the museum. I came in at a difficult time. the whole world was reckoning with issues of racism, systemic discrimination, and then I had the very I had the task of looking inwards at this organization that I was joining to see, you know, what were we going to do about it? Um, and it's been, you know, it's not something you take pleasure in saying it's been amazing, but it has been good learning for me. Um, it's been pretty inspiring to see people really committed to the issues um, of human rights, of equity, which is exactly what I've seen. Um, and learning to work together. And then there's all the fun stuff about being in a new workplace and getting to know people and finding people you trust and and learning about all the amazing things that we're here to do. So um, 
it's going to be a journey, but I, I always expected it would be. Yeah. Um, I don't think uh, creating you know, a world where we treat each other the way we want to be treated isn't something that happens overnight. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's what this museum is dedicated to. And looking inwards and thinking about how we're going to model that within our workplace mm -hmm. for others is uh, it's tough work, but it's good. Yeah, so I know it is. And you know, there are other organizations that are doing the same thing. And it seems to be, uh, you know, more so in the museums and the art galleries where they're really, again, looking at themselves within. And because this is the Museum for Human Rights, what have you learned besides, you know, working with your staff and everything like that, but what have you learned personally being here and what is truly important to you now? So I've learned many things, um, but I think uh, one of the most important lessons I've had is that I used to do human rights seminars and presentations and talk to workplaces that were having these kinds of issues. Um, and now I have to kind of turn it on myself and do all the things that I would talk about doing, which is check your own bias, you know, step back and take a trauma-informed approach sometimes. People have their stories. They come to the table with all of their own experiences, which then influence how they work. Um, so it's been good learning for me. Um, mm -hmm. I feel a real spotlight uh, on the museum, but in some ways on me. And I think I've, I've um, given myself a bit of permission that I knew this, but I remind myself one person isn't going to, to change a workplace. One person isn't going to um, end racism. Are we going to end racism? I don't know, but we're going to work pretty hard towards it, right? Mm -hmm. And now you've got some new galleries open and there are people coming in and we did talk about this place is so cavernous. I mean, you could have 250 or 500 and it would still not be full. Um, the galleries that you brought in are so interesting and so timely. What was it in your mind to bring artivism and the witness blanket at this particular time to the museum? I think um, if you look around, we're, we're at this point in time and maybe the pandemic creates a pause for us. Mm -hmm. Maybe it amplifies inequities. Well, I know that it amplifies inequities that are already there. But I think um, society as a whole is really thinking about who are we? Um, where did we come from? How did we get here? And why do we still have these systemic issues that we do in terms of discrimination and racism and oppression? So those two exhibits, um, they're pretty beautiful because they're really pure. They're about the power of art. They're about how art can move people. But what underlies them are stories of genocide and of um, people whose rights have been infringed and struggle and, and harm. Um, but there's this positive thread throughout, which is that you can do something about it, right? So the stories in artivism, they show how people, they stood up in these um, very difficult situations of you know, mass atrocities and they stood up, you know, they found it within themselves. You look at the witness blanket, which tells the stories 
of Indian residential schools. And you know, the, the pieces, 800 pieces from across, uh, that gathered from across the country from the sites of those schools and churches and, and government institutions. And what's the thread? I mean, the thread is resilience. Um, it's the power to move, uh, move your own soul, but also someone else's. And I think at the end of the day, that's what underlies human rights, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's that those things about us that are the core of who we are as humans. And it, it's been pretty exciting to, to bring them in now. And, and I know it's, it's not ideal times. People will come when it's safe to do so. Um, and those that come, I know, feel safe. It's big and safe. Lots of things have been done to ensure that the exhibits themselves are, um, were, were developed with safety in mind for the visitor. Um, but it's pretty incredible to see how people mm -hmm. react. Well, I, I think that is the main part, is that the museum creates emotions. And just thinking that here we are in Winnipeg, you're born and raised in Winnipeg, we have this national institution here. How can we get more people to understand? Because you had mentioned too, it's the stories that people tell and we all have a story. And yet, there's so much darkness out there. Um, how would, what, what would you say? I would to your say, neighbors? yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, um, when I think about this place, and I think what attracted me to want to come and work at the museum, it's I saw this really immense potential to move people. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean just make them sad, I mean make them do something. Um, and I think we all want that. Mm -hmm. You need to be touched in order to be inspired. Um, and so I never thought I'd work at a museum. Um, <laughs> But I do, and what I can see is it's the power of human rights education. It's mm -hmm. how we, and how do we educate? How do we ensure that we don't do the things that we've done mm -hmm. in the past? We do it by inspiring people to feel differently about other humans. Um, so so, so that's, that's what I see is probably the most powerful part of what we do here. And you do have a daughter, and in this day and age now, I mean, the power of, for women uh, to move forward, to dream, to be anything they want to be, and yet here we see so many oppressed all over the world. I, I'm, how would you explain it to your daughter, and, and what would be your wish for your daughter to move forward as you know, you pass on your torch of wisdom for human rights? So. And I actually have three daughters. Oh, okay. Yeah. I only saw um, one. Met yeah. One. <laughs> so um, I say that because they're all different and they receive the information in different ways. Um, but I would, you know, what I've always said is I want them to be confident. Mm -hmm. I want them to go out into the world and, you know, do, feel that they can do anything that they want to do. What I realize as I, as I get older and through the work that I do is that confidence comes from that sense of worth that you have about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, that's the core of human rights, right? It's treating others with worth and dignity. And so when I, when I talk to them about, it's tough out there, you're young women, you're of color, you're women, you're, you know, you, you need to be able to love who you want to love, express yourself the way you wish, practice as you want. And I can say all those things to them. And they, they get it, <laughs> they want those things. 
I, I also want them prepared for what the world has in store for them. And it, it's, there's lots of good, mm -hmm. but there will be challenges. And the only way I think they'll get through them is that if we start to think differently. Um, but, you know, ultimately, they're the ones who give you hope, right? You hear yeah. them talk with their friends, you hear them, hear them analyze issues in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me think, okay, <laughs> we're, we're okay, we're getting somewhere. Well, and that's, that's so important. And I guess moving on into the future, once we get over this pandemic, we can walk freely and enjoy the museum. What are your hopes and goals? I hope that this museum is a place in our community that people see themselves. I hope that it is uh, filled with people who come here to spend time, to learn. Um, I hope it's a community space because I think that when we bring people together and not just because they came to see a specific exhibit, but because it's the kind of place that inspires them to think about, about rights, about other people, about how um, we want to, to live together, um, I think we'll have sort of done our job. And so, I think we're well on our way. I know we have work to do, but I hope that's where I hope we get. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain we will. And I guess to end it, it might have been something that you said in an article. This is the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, not of Human Rights. Exactly. This is, this is, that, that is a very purposeful choice in the name. Um, and it is a place where people come to to learn, but um, to take a stand, right? As you learn, you learn also how to take a stand for what you believe in. And um, there's a place for everyone here. There's a place for you to come. I know everyone's at a different place in that journey and some people aren't even ready to think about what is that journey. Um, but I know that when people come in their own way, they'll begin to move, move along the way. and, and that's all, I think that's all we want. Well, thank you so much, Aisha. We'll be all following you <laughs> <laughs> as we join the movement to make not only Winnipeg, but the whole world a better place. And we'll start right here with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Thank you so much. Thank you. I believe that um, art transcends spaces. It transcends borders, it transcends languages. Um, and as a result, it, it, it assists us to be able to connect with each other. I think that one of the great powers of art is its ability to access something beyond our mind, reach into our heart and make us feel something. Uh, and when we want to see change in the world, when we're able to make something personal, I think that's maybe the first step towards activating people uh, to, to different behaviors, to, to actually being part of change. So Artivism profiles six artists and art collectives from around the world. And 
It's about how they create art as a response to human rights violations and, and a way to prevent them from ever happening again. The Witness Blanket is um, a collection, about 800 pieces gathered from the sites of Indian residential schools, some government buildings, some churches, and donated by survivors and their families that when woven together in this beautiful piece of art, uh, tell us the story of Indian residential schools and ensure that we think about how we are going to make sure this never happens again. Presented alongside each other, these exhibitions are testaments really to the power of art to help people survive and to resist, to build hope and, and to take action for human rights. So Artivism was created by an organization called the Auschwitz uh, Institute for the Prevention of Genocide and Mass Atrocities. So this particular uh, exhibition uh, was developed and premiered at the 2019 Venice Biennale. Um, and its presentation at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is its North American debut. I strongly believe that everybody can participate in the effort of making sure that the dark history of, let's say, my country or other countries, just the dark histories of the world will not repeat themselves. I really strongly believe that everybody can participate in that in their own way. As an artist, I feel this is my responsibility. Art for me is a space to create conversations and for me to have a conversation and for me to create space for other people to have a conversation. Art has a way of, um, of confronting the past without reliving it, bringing people in who perhaps normally would just like close their eyes or shut off their ears. Art knows no language. Art doesn't speak to you through words, but through experience. And when you look at a piece of art, you can feel what that artist was feeling. You can see through their eyes instead of just reading words, but you experience it. It's really hard to walk away and not feel something. And I think if you feel something, then you can act on it. What's great about the museum is, is it's ability to educate and transform the way Canadians and young Canadians think about the importance of human rights historically, but also, you know, the role of, of evolving our perception of human rights moving forward. And I think doing that through art is just such a creative way that will hopefully inspire people that otherwise maybe wouldn't be engaging with this sort of subject matter. And I, I think that's why it's such a powerful exhibition. And So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went across Canada to listen to the survivor stories. So we were called survivors of residential schools. What happens is you have to share your story of what you went through in residential school. It was traumatizing for me to go through that. The whole time that you're there, you feel like you're making it up because everything that we learned in residential school 
about who we were or how we were rejected. Like you're lazy, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're, you're a drunk, you're all these things. There's still, those, those beliefs are still very prominent in, in some of the people, in some of the communities. When I'm creating artwork, I don't have that doubt. I, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, I really believe that the work becomes, in the process, the work becomes what it needs to become. It tells the story that needs to be told. For me, The Witness Blanket has always been about telling truth, about recording truth. So first and foremost, what I hope people get when they come to see it is a sense of that truth, the collective truth that is held by all of those pieces and all of the stories. That if, if it's settler folks who are not familiar with the history um, that we have in Canada uh, of residential schools, of colonialism, that, that it becomes an illustration and marks a point where they shift from not knowing to knowing. And when it comes to Indigenous people who have invariably been affected by these things, I hope that they see that care, that love, that, that these things are interconnected. Um, the schools, the reserve systems, the displacement, these have all been part of uh, intentional removal of indigenous presence. Lastly, I hope for, for survivors, residential school survivors and intergenerational survivors who might, who might see the blanket, that they feel hurt. I know that's a lot to ask from a work of art, but I've seen through the ways that different people have, have brought projects to me, through things like the agreement that we've made with the Museum for Human Rights, that, that it can happen. Part of preserving the artwork is working with Carrie and his team to think about how we can honour the spirit of each material and story on the artwork. The stewardship agreement guides us and, and really it's quite incredible how much interaction and collaboration there is between teams of people to make decisions about how to best honour each voice and community represented within the artwork. And I hope that as you look at the examples we provided and as you look panel to panel and, and piece to piece, you really have the opportunity to get up close, um, think about the details of materials and what that story is they're trying to convey. This is evidence, this is uh, a conversation piece, this is a piece for learning. Projects like this are so important to community because when we think about truth and reconciliation, this particular piece really is the first part of that, which is truth. 
And although there isn't a written roadmap on truth or reconciliation, those steps are in that sequence. What you witness here is the truth aspect and that experience that happened in the past to Indigenous people. And it is so important for us as a country that we continue this dialogue and in order to move into reconciliation to go through the truth. When I think about the relationship that we have with the witness blanket as a museum, I really think about it as a relationship. So we don't own those pieces. We have a shared agreement and we have a shared responsibility to care for those stories. That's a different way of looking at history. It's a different way of thinking about how we're going to work towards decolonization and reconciliation because it's in partnership. And I think that's what the relationship was always intended to be. It's just taken us a while to figure out that that's how we're actually going to get to the place we talk about going to. Art is a beautiful medium to tell human rights stories because art has this unique ability to evoke emotion in us as humans. And when that emotion is sparked in us, it makes us think, it makes our brain then start to work and think about what are we going to do to digest that emotion? What are we going to do with this feeling that we're left in? And I think that's what sparks inspiration. Welcome back to Hugh at Home. Hopefully once this lockdown is over, we can return to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and see those wonderful exhibitions. Moving on, coming up next is Linda Dristowicz, our life and business coach. She has got a great segment on how we can create boundaries with love. Hey everyone, how are you? I wanted to talk today about creating boundaries, especially with love. There's a couple things about boundaries that people make the mistake of. We think when we're creating boundaries, we are creating the expectations for how other people will behave. But what we're really doing when we're creating boundaries 
is creating the expectations of how we're going to behave in certain situations, how we're going to respond, and even one step further, how we're going to think and feel in those situations. And it is another, uh, that that's one, one whole concept that is eye-opening for a lot of people because we often think that boundaries are about controlling how other people behave and it's really, really not. It is about uh, showing up for ourselves and how we want to react and we want to respond to the world. So that's that's the first uh, piece that is interesting for people to think about. The second thing is that I know for myself that I discovered this, um, we have an understanding that once we understand intellectually that we should set a boundary that we assume that we it's going to be fairly easy once we are we have that in place like when um when this person is interrupting me all the time i'm going to react this way i'm going to either you know quietly excuse myself from the room or i'm going to ask them not to something that you've already decided in advance that you're going to do and we think I've already figured this out, it's going to be easy. And in fact, in my experience and what I've seen with other people is setting boundaries is incredibly challenging at first because it is, for a lot of people, we get uh, a feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm rocking the boat. What if people don't like what I'm doing? What if people get mad at me? What if, um, what if they challenge me on this? How am I going to respond? And that is why we often then avoid actually following through on the boundaries that we've already set in our heads because it is actually very challenging. It is hard. It does make us feel really uncomfortable at first. And what I will offer you, though, is learning how to sit with that discomfort for yourself is creating boundaries with love. And that is something that once you do it a few times and get some practice with it, it does get easier. I usually found it's helpful to have, uh, to be coached on this. It's, it's, um, it's something that uh, unless you really are experienced with experiencing discomfort and experience angst and experiencing that feeling of, my gosh, my world is going to end because I have set this boundary. Unless you have experience with that, it can be really daunting and it can be really intimidating. So don't beat yourself up if you are the type of person who sets boundaries and then doesn't follow through because it's hard. It's hard work. And but the beautiful thing is it is worth it because what you are doing is you are showing up for yourself. You're saying what you want matters, what you feel matters, what you want matters. And that is something that for a lot of us is is fairly unfamiliar. We're not used to having our wants and needs and desires met or acknowledged, let alone by ourselves and other people. So set boundaries with love. Know that 
it doesn't just happen intellectually. It is going to be felt in your body as something that could be feeling really scary at first. Know that it gets better with practice. It's not about controlling other people. And it is really about knowing yourself, knowing what you want, knowing what you desire is important. And if you need help on boundary setting, coaching is a great way to go. You have somebody who will hold you accountable and talk you through managing those uncomfortable feelings that are going to come up. But you can do it. I believe in you. Looking to highlight your hairstyle with some glitz and glamour? Well, you'll love Birch Accessories. They are unique in design and quality without the high-end price. Express your personal style to the world with these beautiful and affordable pieces. Order online at verdesalon.ca or birchaccessories.ca and use NEW10 for 10% off your first order. Coming up next on Hue at Home, we'll have a clip from our Hue virtual chat. And we are a podcast, so you can listen on all your favorite platforms. This time, Susie talks about the use of pronouns, and you might see them being used in people's own personal signatures. We'll find out more on how it can help with your own personal identity. And uh, so I want you to start off today, Susie, and, um, you know, educate some of us that aren't aware and uh, maybe... You know, teach us on how to understand more about all of this. Well, my post was mostly from a social media perspective, mm-hmm. not um, not speaking from the point of, uh, of lived experience of needing to um, assure people of how I wish to be uh, presented or addressed. But my post was more about um, that this is an important step, not just for social media, actually, mm-hmm. but I really think that it's important to have um, on business cards, in your email signatures, on your LinkedIn profiles, any way that, um, especially now that we're meeting over Zoom and things like that, we're not necessarily necessarily having these face-to-face connections and um, there's a piece of our interaction uh, history as humans that's missing, right? So I think it's really important. And this also goes back to a couple weeks ago, um, I believe it was Ian McCausland uh, posted something or shared something about um, people with difficult or long names and not uh, not wanting to put upon other people the, um, the onus of pronouncing that name properly or whatever mm-hmm. that might be. And I think that it's really important, especially now in 2021 and you know as we move forward, it's really important to learn how to address people in the way that they wish to be addressed. And so when I meet somebody new uh, and they say their name to me, I will sometimes ask them to say it again and maybe even slower just so I can make sure that I'm hearing them properly. Sometimes I do struggle with with hearing especially over zoom and things like that make sure that i'm saying it properly i'll say it back to them and um and then ask for you know a card or their uh it, it written down you know so that i can make sure if i have to reconnect with them you know via email or phone whatever i make sure i'm saying it right it seems like such a such a simple thing to do but i think that there's a lot of people especially racialized people who have changed their names who have shortened their names who have adopted Canadian or white names to make it easier for other people to say their names. And I'm here to say, I don't like that anymore. I want you to own the name that you want and to tell me how you wish to be addressed. And I am going to do my best to honor that and say it properly. It's the same thing with pronouns, I think. It's so much easier 
if you tell people how you would like to be addressed, and if we make it commonplace, it becomes a courtesy and not uh, and not something that is meant to out people or meant to be a surprise or anything like that. It's just a common courtesy. And it's a civility that we can offer each other that lends grace and kindness into an introduction or an interaction. Wow. I mean, that's... And yeah, and you're so right. I mean, Linda, do you want to? Who's got a finger? Oh, yo, oh, sorry. No, no. Okay, go right. Go ahead, Robin. Go ahead. Yeah. And a quick question for Susie: Was it you who had written in your post as well about the privilege of? Yes. yes. Okay, because I just noticed that. I when you started talking and Tracy, when you asked that question, so I quickly changed my my pronoun, like added my pronouns in there. She, her, right. And as you were talking, I realized in that moment how much of a privilege that was. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to wonder what the repercussions were. Absolutely. I, so to me, that was, that was a moment right there. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I don't need to hold any more space in this conversation, but I can certainly pass it to Cynthia and Robin, who have lived experience and can speak to what this is like, for sure. Okay, Robin. <laughs> I just want to say pronouns are not important to everyone. And so although, like, it's this piece about, you know, I heard that maybe we should. Like, I would put, I don't give Right, so that's what I would put on my name because... Can you add that to your Zoom profile? That'd be fabulous. <laughs> because, like, for me, I actually don't care. And I know it's super important to, to some people. Um, and, you know, I have friends that call me she, I have friends that call me he, I have friends that call me they. And, like, I, I think one of the things is we have to be really cautious about like do we blanket this and say everyone should do this and and i get the premise behind hey putting it out there but i also want to have individuals that have the choice to not put it out there if they don't care and so i think there's an important conversation in that um and and i linda i really get the privilege piece right because you know I'd probably pick more masculine pronouns if I was going to go for it. And then people look at me and they're like, what? But it is the place where I really want us to be cognizant about do we then shame people who don't put it up there? Now, some people might put it up there because they're... Sorry, Tracy, I'm in this mood today. But some people might put it up there because it doesn't matter to them what people say. And so I think we have to be cautious of that piece too. And maybe that will change for me in the future because I've always said I'm a hybrid, right? Boy brain, thank you, Kirsten and Charlotte for interpreting. Um, girl body at the moment, no. And Cynthia, Cynthia helps me out too quite a lot. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I, I just think there's a place about being politically correct for politically correct sake and allowing people 
to express their individuality, which I know, Susie, is totally you. Like, I love the stuff that you say, but I was like, whoa, not everyone should have to. That's my two pieces. I'll be quiet now. Well, Thank you, Tracy. No, but I, I so I want to ask you, Robin, I mean, because you, so I'm sitting here a little uh, confused, too, because, okay, because you're so open, and like you said, it, you don't give up, mm-hmm. I can't say that, that but, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, but there are others that it really matters. And if I make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I don't, you know. So I guess that's where I wanted to talk about this and what is, I guess, and I hate the politically correct or the proper way or, and I guess now with the pronouns, now that should be a clearer, you know, direction for you when you're addressing somebody. Um, so yeah, so what would you, like, how do we do work around that, right? I mean, I guess it's just going to be a conversation. I don't know, Susie? Well, I think, I think Robin makes a perfect point, right? Is that mm-hmm. so, so for example, I put it in my, my bio. I don't just do it for me, but I do it for people who maybe don't feel safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's my, that's my mode. That's my way of showing I'm a safe person to express whoever you want to be to me. Mm-hmm. Again, that's my position. Not everybody's going to take that position. And I think too, it also goes back to when I'm asking you or I'm telling you, my name is Susie and my pronouns are she and her. That's also an invitation for me to say, how would you like me to address you? And that's your opportunity to say, like Robinson, I don't care. Or to say, you know, mine are such and such. Right. Yeah. No. And I guess that's, you know, those conversations that are, we're going to have to start to have. And I'm going to go now to Cynthia because that's all about, um, you know, acceptance without understanding. Right. Yeah, it is. Um, it It's intriguing because I agree fundamentally with everyone. Um but, you know, there's a couple of key things. First is, it, it has to begin with acceptance. It begins with acceptance without understanding. Um, and Robin's right. Some people will choose to put in their pronouns, some won't. And sometimes the reason is that people don't want to use them is not that they don't care. It's that if they use them, they stand out. They're, they're mm-hmm. further isolated. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where allyship comes in, because in an organization, especially in an organization that comes from the place that says, "Okay, you know, we'll do this. And if you don't need to do it, that's great. But, you know, that person needs to affirm their identity through their pronouns, then they go ahead. But if they're the only one that does it, they have just further marginalized themselves. And so allies that have the privilege to not have to do it by putting it in, as Susie was saying, you reaffirm your allyship in being able to support people. Mm-hmm. So that's really, you know, a key element of privilege is understanding you have privilege in using it. Mm-hmm. But the other part that no one spoke to is when you're not sure, which Susie was talking to with the idea of complex names, and I struggle with complex names it, but I try, I, I, I definitely try my best to work it in and to ask how somebody, but at the end of the day, if you're not sure, just call me Cynthia. Like, <laughs> it, 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 it's, 
um, whether you perceive it to be male or female or something else, the simple fact is, is I am Cynthia. You're not going to get it wrong if you just call me Cynthia, right? Um, and so really kind of figuring out the strategy that works. But I would say that if you're in a group, an organization, and they are, are adopting this process of allowing the identity. And again, I speak from coming from a corporate background where putting pronouns in emails was considered we're diverse enough. In other words, it was too much to ask for. So when organizations want to adopt and allow that, the whole idea that they can have allies that can support that so that they're not felt alone and isolated. Yeah. So that's, that's my a, two cents. That's an I, honest, Susie. Yeah. I think that, you know, in, in my post, I basically said that I understand that I am steeped in privilege in the ability to put that out there because it's not, it's not, uh, there's no repercussions and there's no punishment for me doing that. And, and that, that makes me feel two ways. Like you said, you know, like I feel, I don't want to force anybody to do something they don't want to do or are not comfortable in doing yet. And yet I also want to signal to the larger community that I am okay with, with your expression, your, however you need to be and you want to be, I am there for that. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, I, I think, too, but I hope that we can come to a place where there's more acceptance, like you said, without understanding, and a place where people won't feel like like they're like they're not able to be who they are that's all that's the part that i that i don't want to be at anymore we want to give a big thank you to all of our special guests on today's show and leave you with this question how soon after you've been vaccinated will you feel safe with other people we want to know so send us an email to hello at ilikeyou.com or message us on facebook and instagram at ilikeyou but for now stay safe and stay healthy and we'll see you next time on Hue at Home. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeHue.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. 
Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.